You're listening to a sermon preached at First Baptist Church in Farwell, Texas. We are committed to loving God, loving people, and going into the world to share the gospel. We pray you find this message both challenging and encouraging. Hey, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 verses 9 through 25 is where we will be this morning. Acts chapter 8 verses 9 through 25. This morning we are going to continue our study in the birth of the church from the book of Acts. If you have a ribbon in your Bible or a bookmark in your Bible, uh, put it there in Acts chapter 8. And then also uh, uh, put a marker in Matthew chapter 7. We'll be there here in just a moment. Acts chapter 8 is the miraculous birth, the historical account of the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. We're going to continue our study in looking at the birth of the church. The book of Acts gives us a historical account, um, in all reality, a miraculous account. Uh, I I just believe that, that it is a miracle that the church is still alive and well today. Do you agree with that? Isn't it a miracle? Think that, that God has left it up to mankind, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we haven't messed it up. I mean, that might not sound too miraculous to you, but, but think about mankind. What is going on in our world today? There is a coronavirus, and we go and hoard toilet paper. We're, we're not the brightest people, right? Think, think about it. It's that type of people for the last 2,000 years that God has entrusted the gospel to spread and to grow His church. Now, let me say it again. I think it's a miracle that the church is still alive and well today. Amen. And Acts chapter 8 gives us a beautiful, miraculous, historical account of the birth of the church. The mission of the church the explosive growth of the church all of which did not come easy the birth of the church the explosive growth of the church the mission of the church did not come easy it came with trials and persecution and it is still alive today with trials and persecution and as we'll see this morning The church did not come without Satan's attempt to infuse false believers in the church to to destroy the church from the inside out. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. Chapter chapter 8, sorry, let me pause. Chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. Gives us the first known satanic attempt attempt to include false believers in the church. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 8, verse 9 says this, A man named Simon, we're going to be introduced to a man named Simon this morning. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city in Samaria, 
and amaze the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. Underline that. He is declaring that he is somebody great. Now, now what would that be? Well, we'll find out here in just a moment. They all, all the people in this town paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. Wow. Simon is declaring to be somebody great. And what are the people echoing? He, he's called the great power of God. Look at verse 11. They were attentive to him because he amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, this is the people, when the, when the people of that town believed Philip, the people who were following Simon from the least to the greatest, when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and, underline this word, and was amazed as he observed the signs and the great miracles that were being performed let's go on verse 14 when the apostles who were at jerusalem heard that samaria had received the word of god they sent peter and john to them after they went down there to samaria they prayed for them so that the samaritans might receive the holy spirit because it had not yet come down on any of them verse 16 they they had only been baptized in the name of the lord jesus then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. 19, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Sounds good, right? We're going to unpack that here in just a moment. Verse 20, But Peter says to him, May your silver be destroyed with you, Simon, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, Simon, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon says so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages and Samaria. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your holy word, that you would reveal to us any sin in our life. God, I pray that you would reveal the truth of our salvation to us this morning. God, I pray that for those that are here this morning, for those listening online that are not believers, God, I pray that you would burden their heart, you would cause an unsettledness inside their heart to know that they are not saved but God I pray also that you would give them the Holy Spirit and let them know that they can be saved by accepting you as their Lord and Savior by repenting of their sin and turning from their wicked ways Father we love you we thank you it's in your son's precious and holy name I pray amen Acts chapter 9 again gives us this Acts chapter 8 sorry gives us this glimpse into Satan's attempt to infuse the church with false believers knowing this he can't destroy the church but he can weaken the church 
If he can't destroy it from the outside, he will weaken the church from the inside. And we see that in the life of Simon. There are people who self-identify as a Christian. But they are lost. Let me say that again. There are people who self-identify as a Christian, but who are lost. Matthew chapter 7, verses, <clears throat> we'll look specifically at verses 22 and 23. I believe is one of the most sobering texts. A text that should arrest our attention more so in my own personal opinion, than, than those in Revelation, we ought to study those, we ought to preach those, believe in those for sure. More than those that might grab our attention in Daniel, yes. But for me, Matthew chapter 7, I believe is one of the most sobering texts in all of Scripture. It is the account, Jesus gives us an account of people who self-identify as a Christian, but biblically they are lost. Do you know that there can be a difference? I mean, we see it today. I mean, 20 years ago, we wouldn't even understand this. But there are people who self-identify as something that they are not. And just because they self-identify as something doesn't mean that they are. Right? Same thing has been going on in Christendom from the very beginning of the church. There are people who self-identify as Christians, but biblically they are lost. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, is, I mean, it's like, it's like Jesus opens up and gives us an opportunity to be a fly on the wall in heaven when self-identified Christians enter into heaven. What will that moment be like? Matthew chapter 7, look at what it says. Verse 22 says this, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Uh, did, didn't, we, didn't we speak? Godly words in your name? Didn't we, didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do good Christian work in your name? And do many miracles in your name? Look at the answer. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Here's a, Jesus gives us a window. He opens up heaven for just a moment and he says, this is what it will be like for self-identified Christians. People who believe they are Christians, who self-identify as Christians, but they have never accepted me as their Lord and Savior. They have never repented from their sins. This is what it's going to be like. They've done some good works. They, they even know God because they've, doing the, they've been doing this work in God's name, but they have never repented from their sin. I believe for many people, many people inside the church, I believe that many of them, their second step in heaven will be their first step towards hell with no ability to, to change directions. Let me say that again. I believe that many people, even inside the church, we will all stand before God in heaven. We will all give an account, right? Their second step will be their first step towards hell and no ability to turn around. In Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25, 
I believe, gives us four characteristics of someone who is a self-identified Christian. And we see it in the life of Simon. Simon, you could say, was a self-identified Christian. So let's look at it. What is the first characteristic of a self-identified Christian? We see it in the life of Simon. Simon had an inflated view of himself. Simon had an inflated view of himself. Look at verse 9. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery, magic if you will, in that city and he amazed. He, he astonished people with his magic. He astonished, astonished the Samaritan people. He amazed them while claiming, while making the declaration that he is something great. Now, we have to read in the text, and I believe we can stay true to the text by what would that be? Well, we see it later on. What are they calling him? What are the people calling him? They are saying that he is called the great power of God. Simon has an inflated view of himself. And look at the results. Verse 10. They all, from the least to the greatest, they all paid attention to him. From the, from the least, from the, from the most insignificant people, to the, from the smallest crowd to the significant people in Samaria, to the greatest crowds in Samaria, he amazed them. They paid attention to him and they said, this man is called. Well, who called him that? Simon. <laughs> that was the declaration that he was making. This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him. They... Simon had their attention. Simon had their, their focus. Simon had their calendar. Simon had their money. He, they were all attentive from the least to the greatest. And he was amazing them with his magic. Simon had a prideful, egotistical view of himself which was fueled and fanned by the people of Samaria. Samaria, Samaria. I, I, believe, um, I believe Simon had long arms. You know what I mean by long arms? Like, like Simon was always patting himself on the back. He could always reach his back to pat himself on the back to say, man, look how good you are. Look how, 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 how important you are. Look at the crowds that are following you. Look at the people who are listening to you. And that just fueled and it fanned the flame of his pride. Listen, S Simon was a Samaritan brand. You know what I mean? By, like, like he, he was an influencer. He was influencing not just the least of them, but he was influencing the influencers. If uh, uh, teenagers, you'll, you'll, he, he had a blue check mark on his Instagram. You following me? Like on his Twitter, like he was the man. He was an influencer. In Simon's inflated view of himself, here's the danger. Simon's inflated view of himself gave Satan an opening into his life. It gave Satan a foothold into his life.
to spread a false doctrine in the church. And as long as Simon listened to and he believed the voices in the crowd who thought he was a god, who thought he had the power of God, he could not come to a proper sense of himself. Now, this is a true, literal story. But I'll be honest, I've never met anyone who thought they were a god. I've met some pretty prideful people. I've met some pretty arrogant people with long arms that, you know what I mean, but I could always... And, and so we, we, we must not just discount this because, well, I don't think I'm a God. I want you to see, listen, pride is dangerous. Pride and arrogance is dangerous. It is a drug that you cannot come down from, that you always have to get more of. Listen, you, you must recognize you're lost and in need of a Savior before you can ever be saved. And as long as pride is your fuel, as long as the crowd is fanning the flame, as long as you're constantly, being here, uh, uh, constantly hearing that you are great and that you can't do any wrong, listen, you'll never recognize that you're in need of a Savior. You'll never come to that place. Listen, Simon, who was locked firmly in the grip of pride, never saw his need for a Savior, even though he saw the benefit of a partner. This is where a lot of self-identified Christians jump on board. Simon never saw a need for a Savior, but he saw the benefit of Jesus being a partner. Meaning this, that, that he had Jesus like in his pocket. And he pulled Jesus out when, or his desire was to pull Jesus out when it was socially acceptable. Like, like in this crowd, I'll pull Jesus out. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a cross necklace today. You see people doing that, they're just, just wearing uh, Christian jewelry. Like, like with this crowd, it's tucked in where no one can see it. But with this crowd, it's beneficial. Maybe, maybe it's a Christian t-shirt. Like, like around this crowd, I'll wear this t-shirt. But around this crowd, ain't no way. Might get judged. But, but when, when Christianity is beneficial, I'll wear the Christian t-shirt. That's Simon. He didn't see him as a need for a Savior, but he saw him beneficial as a partner. Listen, Jesus didn't die on the cross to be a partner. He died on the cross to be our Savior. Jesus didn't die on a cross so we could we just pull him out in, in certain social situations that might benefit us, certain situ business situations that might benefit us. Listen, he does not want to be our partner. He wants to be our, he is our Savior. Listen, pride is a universal and deadly sin. I believe pride is quite possibly the most controlling sin in all human fallenness. It, it is a sin that is easy to indulge in. And it is a sin that always grows back, if you know what I mean. Like, 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 um, like shaving. You, 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 you just, women, you're not shaving, you're shaving your legs, maybe, hopefully. Um, 
Like, like, like you, you might go a season where you don't shave. I hope, I don't know, this is getting weird. Um, but, but let me just stay with the face. Like, like you, you just, you have to keep shaving. Like, like, or it's just going to keep growing back. Pride is the same way. It is easy. Pride is easy to indulge in. It is socially acceptable today to be full of pride. Man, that, that man, that woman is a leader. That woman is a pace setter. That woman, that man is an influencer. Yes, you got to kind of put up with some of their pride, but people at that type of leadership, people with that kind of drive, that's just what you have to put up with, hogwash. Listen, the Bible has much to say about the evil of pride. Listen to, what, listen to God's view of pride. I'm going to share several scriptures with you. Just write them down in the margin of your Bible or notepad. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Listen to God's view of pride. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven or are detestable to Him. Notice what tops the list. Arrogant eyes. Pride. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, fear eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. But notice what tops the list. It's pride. It's arrogant eyes. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 gives us another insight into God's view of pride. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Listen to what he says. I hate arrogant pride. That's heavy language. That's harsh language. But we must not play with that which comes so natural to us. And in our culture today, is seen as a virtue. Even among Christians. I hate arrogant pride, God says. Evil conduct and perverse speech. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Do you hear that? Proverbs 16.5, everyone with a proud heart is oh, just somebody I have to put up with, God says. No, detestable to the Lord. Be assured, He will not go unpunished. Oh, this is one we're all familiar with, Proverbs 16.8. We like to quote it when we see someone fall. I've been guilty of this myself. Pride comes before destruction, an arrogant spirit before a fall. I, I remember um, when, our, when our two boys were, or actually our youngest one was the only one at the time, he was showing a, a pig, getting ready for um, the, uh, the city stock show, which uh, we did horrible at. Uh, but but they, were, they, were, they were young, they were, they were small, and, and, um, and the oldest one was telling the youngest one, he didn't know what he was doing, and, and the younger was like, I've got this. And the, what was happening was the pig was running, but the youngest one thought he was walking him, and he was just kind of running behind. He's like, I know what I'm doing. The pig was just running. He's like, he's turned around, and, and the oldest one's like, you're not walking the pig. He's just running away from you. And the youngest one's like, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. And about that time, the pig stops, and he just flips right over the front of the pig. I've got this. I know what I'm doing. Bam. We love to quote this when we watch somebody fall. We don't much care for it when we're the one falling. Proverbs 21.4 The lamp is the, the lamp that guides the wicked. You ready? Here it is. Haughty eyes and an arrogant heart. That's the lamp. 
that is guiding the wicked, that's helping the wicked to make decisions. Haughty eyes and an arrogant heart. Galatians 6.3, For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is Simon. Simon thought he was something. He was declaring that he was something. He was declaring that he was the power of God, that all that he was doing was by the power of God. James chapter 4, verse 6, another one that you might be familiar with, but he gives great, great, greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists. You hear that? I want you to just get that image in your mind. God resists the proud. Resists. Not answering the prayers of the proud. Resisting the proud. But Lord, didn't we we do miracles in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? God resists proud. Group of self-identified Christians. God resists the proud. Only the humble are aware of their inadequacies and shortcomings, have the sense of lostness that drives them to God. I want you to just think for a moment. Contrast, contrast the pride of Simon and the humility of Jesus. Jesus, the very Son of God, came to serve and not to be served. Simon, creation of God, flesh, full of sin, came to amaze people, he thought, to, 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 to astound people with his miracles and make a name for himself. Jesus came who could have made a name for himself, but he laid down his life to point people to God the Father. The contrast could not be any more clear. Simon had an inflated view of himself. The second characteristic of a self-identified Christian that we can see in the life of Simon is this, an inadequate view of salvation. An inadequate view of salvation. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, this is the the people of Samaria, but when they believed Philip, notice this, as he was proclaiming the gospel, as he was proclaiming the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as they were proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now here's where it gets a little bit confusing. Even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere. Watch this. And he was amazed at the gospel, at the declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ, amazed At the life, death, burial, resurrection, the ascension and outpouring of the Holy Spirit? No. He was amazed as he observed the signs and the great miracles that were being performed. I want you to think, just try try to, try to put yourself in the sandals of Simon. Here is a man who is used to amazing people with his miracles. 
And I believe he had real demonic power, giving him the ability to do the miraculous. I'm not discounting that he was truly doing the miraculous. I don't believe that this was a sleight of hand. I don't believe uh, 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 that any of that. I believe that he was truly doing miraculous events filled with the demonic. What's he seeing? He is seeing the miraculous. He is seeing the people that he once amazed, that he once drew a crowd from, from the least to the greatest, now changing their allegiance from a false god to the true god. And what happens? Simon is now amazed as he observes these signs. The good Dr. Luke, the human writer inspired by the Holy Spirit, does not tell us directly what object Simon puts his faith in. He doesn't tell us directly. There's even a contrast between the Samaritan people and Simon. They're, they're amazed at the gospel. Simon is amazed at the miracles. The Dr. Luke, the most prolific writer in the New Testament, the most detailed writer in the New Testament, is silence in the area of where he is placing his faith. And I believe his silence is deafening he's silent here did he place his faith in christ or did he place his faith in his ability to continue to do the supernatural with the help of this jesus guy with the help of this philip guy could he mimic what philip was doing verse 13 simon himself believed and after he was baptized he followed philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and the great miracles that were being performed. Simon, the magician, was intrigued. He was astounded. He was amazed by the miracles. And it appears that that is as far as his faith went. Not in the Gospel. Not in the good news of Jesus Christ that points out that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and here He is your Savior, Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, even though temptation came on him, lived a sinless life, went to the cross to pay the penalty of your sin, was buried three days later, rose again to prove to us that he is the Son of God. That's not what we see his faith in. Listen, Simon viewed salvation as a purely ritual, ritualistic add-on to his already successful life. And it, was just an, it was just an add-on. This is what you see with Buddhists. In India, just this last year I had the opportunity to go to India and to share the gospel with, with, with Buddhists who, who have thousands and thousands upon thousands of gods. And, and, and to be honest with you, it's easy for them to accept Jesus and just add Him to one of their trinkets. To add Him to one of their gods that they already have. Just, just to add Him there, just in case. They don't want to make any gods mad. So sure, we'll accept your Jesus. Where's, where's the little statue? 
Where's the little, the little thing that we can put on our mantle or hang from our, our rearview mirror or hang from our bumper? I mean, they have gods all over the place because they don't want to offend any of them. This is Simon. It's purely ritualistic, an add-on to his already successful life. I want to make this statement, and this is not a popular statement, what I'm about to make. But I have to make it. Faith that does not begin the process of transforming the life towards Christ-likeness is not saving faith. Let me say it again. I want you to get this. Faith that does not begin the process towards transforming the life, or, or sorry, that does not begin the process of transforming the life towards Christ's likeness is not saving faith. Let me tell you something. I, I accepted Jesus Christ when I was 10 years old. I don't think that I was some horrible sinner that, that just when I accepted Christ, my life changed, like drastic change. I'm not saying that. There wasn't a lot of change that, that could take place. But let me tell you what did take place. When I accepted Christ at 10 years old, I was an evangelist. I was a 10-year-old evangelist. I was a tele-evangelist, like a telephone evangelist. Like, like I was a telemarketer before telemarketers were ever invented, I think. Like I would randomly call people. I would, just, I would pick up my phone in my room. I was cool. I had a phone in my room like an actual landline, like one you would have to, y'all with me? pick it up, and I would just random dial phone numbers. And I would ask them, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? What? Who are you talking? Who is this? Who's calling? This is before caller ID, which ruined prank calls, right? Like all the, got, took all the fun out of, out of it. So I would just, for, for hours and upon hours and upon hours, listen, there wasn't a whole lot for me to radically be changed, but there was a hunger inside of me that if I could have this Jesus Christ, other people can have this Jesus Christ. They just need to hear about him. I was thinking, wow, how come everybody else hasn't accepted Jesus Christ? So I'm going to go as a 10-year-old boy, and I'm going to go... And I'm going to call everybody that I can possibly call. Had some good conversations, had a bunch of bad conversations, and I had a bunch of conversations all by myself. And then I had a conversation with an adult. A Christian adult. Seasoned Christian adult. Ah, that's not the way you tell people about Jesus. That's foolish. People aren't going to listen to you. Listen, he might have been right. It might not have been the best way to tell people about Jesus. But you know what he did to that 10-year-old boy? He stopped his heart from a desire to be an evangelist. Faith that does not begin the process of transforming the life towards Christ's likeness is not saving faith. I'm not talking about accepting Jesus Christ and being perfect. What I am talking about is faith that begins to transform your life, that begins the process. There begins to be a hunger for God's Word. There begins to be a hunger to worship God. There begins to be a hunger to be underneath God's teaching and God's preaching, a hunger to be with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, if there is not a transformation that is leaning you, that is not getting you to that direction, listen, it is not salvific faith. It is an add-on to your already quote-unquote successful life. 
Listen to what, listen, the demons believe in God. But yet there's not salvific faith in that. They're not saved. There's, they, they don't have transforming faith. Look, look at James chapter 2, verse 19. It'll be on the screen. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Demons believe. They shudder. They bow at the name of God. They run from the name of Jesus Christ, from the presence of Jesus Christ, because they know He is the Son of God. But listen, they do not love righteousness. They do not hate sin, which to both of those are signs of true salvation. Listen, if there are those that are here this morning that have no hunger for righteousness, no hatred towards sin, then listen, you are a self-identified Christian and not a biblically defined Christian. There must be a hunger for righteousness. Simon believed in the signs. He was amazed at the great miracles. But not in the one whose power was behind them. Listen, salvation is not some ritual act. Salvation is not something that we just grow into. Authentic salvation is the divine transformation of the soul. From the love of self to the love of God. From the love of sin to the love of holiness. That's authentic salvation. And I know what I'm sharing is not popular. It's not comfortable for people to sit and hear. But listen, God help me if all I do is to preach a message that entertains you and helps you have your best life now. God help me if that is my message. I want to quit if that ever comes my, becomes my message. Listen, I, I, I can't stand the thought that anyone would get to heaven and hear these words, anyone who has sat underneath my preaching, that has sat underneath my teaching for any length of time, and they would get to heaven and hear, depart from me for I never knew you. I can't stand the thought of that. That's why I must preach and teach. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. This is not one of those verses that you're flipping through as a pastor and you go, you know, I think I will preach that today. This is the beauty of going verse by verse through books of the Bible. Because it forces us to come to grips with texts like this. Simon, a self-identified Christian, an inflated view of himself, an inadequate, inadequate view of salvation. Third, an inaccurate view of the Spirit and an accurate view of the Spirit. Look at verse 14. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Listen, what was going on in Samaria was so huge, the people were coming to faith in Christ at such huge numbers that it was too big for Philip. They needed some others. And Peter and John came down to help them. Look at verse 15. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because He had not yet come down on any of them. Now verses 15 through 17, and I have to spend a little bit of time here. I, this is often a misunderstood text that leads to a completely misunderstood theology that we must 
clarify. We must spend a little bit of time here. So hang on with me as we go through this. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Many people who believe in two baptisms, the baptism of accepting Christ and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, use this text as a proof text that leads them to a false theology. There is not two baptisms. There is one baptism. So what's going on here? People that push that theology take this text and they misunderstand the birth and the transitional nature of the church, of what's going on in Acts. They, they miss this, that, that the church is, is being birthed at this point. There's a transitional nature going on. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, separate and apart from salvation, is not normative. It's only here in Acts chapter 2, at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and in Acts chapter 8. Pentecost is the moment God sent the Holy Spirit and, and, and gave birth to the church. In our text today, it is separate and apart. Hear me, because this is key for understanding the truth of this text. It is separate and apart from salvation to emphasize and to unify the Samaritans and the Jews. There was so much hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. Listen, we have never experienced in our nation's history the type of hatred that the Samaritans and the Jews had for one another. There is nothing in our nation's history that even comes close to the hatred that these two groups had for each other. There wasn't one Samaritan in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was, was, was uh, poured out. And so here we have this moment, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit after they had accepted Christ, after they had been baptized. Why? Because that is the, the way God's going to do it? No, listen, it's not normative whatsoever. We don't see it anywhere else in Scripture. Why? It is to unify these two people together to make one unified church. They would have never come together if Peter and John wouldn't left Jerusalem and go to a place. You remember, they hated Samaria. They wouldn't step foot in Samaria because of those Dirty dogs in Samaria, the people. Peter and John leave Jerusalem. They come down with Philip. Church is spreading, explosive growth. And God allows this moment to happen to unify the Jews and the Samaritans. Listen, the laying on the hands of the apostles and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit unified. It linked the believers together as one body, as one family in Christ. Listen, Acts chapter 8, verses 15 through 19 is not teaching an additional secondary baptism for spiritual elite. And that's what that theology teaches. If you are spiritually elite, if you really want to get to God, then you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. No, listen, when you accepted Jesus Christ and when you invited Him into your heart, you didn't just get a little bit of Jesus, you got all of Jesus. You got all of the Holy Spirit. He's not going to come later on when you jump through a couple of hoops. He comes at that moment. But let's get back to Satan. Or not Satan. Let's get back to Simon. Simon's watching Peter and John pray. 
He's watching them lay hands on the Samaritans and he is amazed. His true colors come out. I mean, who who he really is on the inside, what's really going on in his heart is beginning to be revealed. I mean, it's it's like the, the covers are being peeled back off of who Simon really is. Listen, Philip impressed him, but Peter and John overwhelmed him. Look at what it says, verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He sees what's going on. He's like, man, that would be good for me. Let me see how much I can pay for that. Saying, give me this power also so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon treated Peter and John like one of his fellow magicians that they could just trade their secrets. Like, like man, that was a good show you had last night at the magic show. Let me, let me pay you for that skill and you give it to me underneath the table and then I'll go over here and I'll go and practice that skill. That's what Simon thinks that he is doing. His true nature comes out. His desire to amaze people, to attract people, to be the center of attention, to have people praising him, looking at him, coming to his shows, it, that is what motivated him. Motivated him. He is mystified by the marvelous, but Simon hasn't been mastered by Jesus. Jesus is not his Savior. Jesus is not his Lord. Listen, God shares his glory with no one. Simon thinks the Spirit is something he can buy. A power that he can go on the road with. This Jesus stuff is good business. It looks really good on his resume. Notice Peter's response to Simon's offer of money. Verse 20, But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Listen to, what he, listen to his rebuke. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Simon's view of the Spirit as a commodity to be bought, to be used for his own fame, to to add, to, to gain his own social gathering was blasphemy to a holy God. Peter calls it out. Simon had an inflated view of himself, an inadequate view of salvation, an inaccurate view of the Spirit. Notice this last one really quickly. An insufficient view of sin. Self-identified Christians have an insufficient view of sin. It's just not that bad. And if I don't get caught, it really doesn't matter. And if I do get caught, I'll just say sorry and move on. Peter follows his condemnation of Simon with a call for his repentance. Look at what he does. Verse 22. Peter says this, Therefore repent. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible your heart's intent may be forgiven. Listen, repentance is always the first marker of salvation. You can't have salvation without repentance. 
It's always the first marker of true biblical salvation. This is the message of John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist say? Repent for the kingdom of God is near. What does Jesus say? Repent for the kingdom of God is near. It's the first marker of true salvation. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. As Peter is preaching that incredible message and, 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 and their sin, the people that are listening, they're, they're, they're pierced with their sin. They, they, say, they say, Peter, what must, we do, what must we do to be saved? What does Peter say to them? Repent. Repent and be baptized. Listen, salvation is impossible without repentance. And I believe there are many self-identified Christians who's ne- who have never repented. They've been sorrowful for their sin, but they have never came to a place where they truly repentance. What is repentance? Let me give you the nice little clean definition that comes out of the Bible dictionary. Ready? Here it is. It is an inner change of mind resulting in an outer change of conduct. An inner change of mind resulting in an outer change of conduct. I've often thought of it as this, is that repentance is doing a hundred, I'm going in this direction, I recognize, I've been told that this is sin, and I do a 180 degree direction, or 180 degrees turn, and I go the other direction towards Christ. But listen, If there's never a change of mind, then this 180 degree turn is temporary. It's temporary. It's weeks. It's days maybe. At best. And then because our mind hasn't been changed, because our heart hasn't been changed, then it's a slow 180 degree back turn. Turn back going. Same direction that we were going in. Peter says to Simon, repent of this wickedness. He says in verse 23, for I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Simon was inwardly miserable and spiritually enslaved to sin. That's what he's saying here. And watch what Simon does. He expresses sorrow. He's he's sorry for what he has done. But he refuses to ask the Lord for forgiveness. Look at what he says. This is his request of Peter. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon says, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Simon's only concern is his escape from the consequences of his sin. Self-identified Christian has an inaccurate view of sin. They don't recognize that it breaks the heart of God. That our sin is what put Jesus Christ on the cross. And there's a sorrow. There's a hope I don't have to deal with the consequences. But there's not repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 9-10, through 10, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, the, this, this young, this, this, this new church that he has helped plant. Listen to what he says, I now rejoice. Not because you were grieved. Not because this thing has happened to you that's caused you sorrow, that's caused you grief. I don't rejoice at that. But because your grief has led to repentance. That's what I rejoice over. Because... This thing that has happened to you has led to repentance for you are grieved as God willed so that you don't experience any loss from us. Watch this. For godly grief produces repentance 
that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. What is the difference? Worldly grief is sorrow for what we have done. Godly grief leads to repentance. Oh God, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know what I'm doing breaks your heart. I know what I'm doing has caused your son to die on the cross. Oh God, would you, would you, would you remove the desire for that sin? Will you remove the, the hunger for that sin? And will you replace it with a hunger for your righteousness, with a hunger for your holiness? That's repentance. It's grief that leads to repentance. That's godly grief. Worldly grief produces death because it never leads to repentance. Let me ask you, have you ever came to a place in your life where you have repented from your sin? Listen, not not sorrow for your sin, but have you ever come to a place where you have repented, turned, and began to pursue righteousness and holiness? Listen, I'm not talking about perfection. We're all going to get off the path. We're all going to mess up. And we're, for some, that's, that's a little bit longer seasons uh, than, than others. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about there, there are many self-identified Christians. They've, they've just never came to that place where they repented from their sin. Have you ever come to that place where you recognize that your sin separates you from God? And have you ever come to a place as, where you have intentionally, you have personally invited Jesus Christ to come into your life. Listen, if you haven't, will you do that today? Don't wait another day. And then let me just, let me say to those of us who are Christians, I believe sometimes we let the Simons in our life, the self-identifying Christians who proclaim to be Christians, but they live a life that is completely void from anything that is Christ-like. We allow them to distract us, to discourage us, to get us to just say, the heck with it. If, that, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want anything to do with it. There's many people that are like that. I, I want to ask you, don't check out. That's what Satan wants to do. That's what we see in this story. Satan is using Simon to get inside the church, to destroy the church from the inside out. And praise God, praise God in Acts chapter 8, Peter, Philip, and John saw through it. They called him out. As far as we know, Simon never came to a true faith in Christ. If church history is correct, and I believe that it is, Simon was the father of Gnosticism, which is a false theology that in the last 50, 60 years. It's crazy. It was dead for, for a couple of thousand years, 16, 1700 years, and then all of a sudden, the last 40 or 50 years, has, has, there's been a renewed interest in it. 
this, this belief of this, of this higher knowledge that, that all that has happened in the deities, all of the creation of earth, all of the creation of mankind is a mistake. And we must work our way to this higher knowledge, this gnosis, to, to, to be a higher person, to be like Christ and eventually become a Christ of our own world. That is Gnosticism. And church history says that Simon is the father of Gnosticism. Oh, listen, self-identified Christianity will not only lead you away from Christ, but it will lead you to a false belief that will just deepen your hardness towards the truth of the gospel. If you're here this morning, you've never accepted Jesus Christ. Oh, may today be the day that you say yes to him. Make him your Lord and your Savior. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you'd like more information about our church or have any questions regarding the sermon you just heard, we would love to hear from you. You can visit our website at www.fbcfarwell.org or send an email to info at fbcfarwell.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching FBC Farwell. It is our prayer that the sermon you listened to was equally challenging and edifying to your walk with Christ. Thank you again for listening and have a blessed week.